Well, it looks like we're going to start on time today, and we'll have a few others join us. Uh, we're still moments away from uh, tea time, but um, I will introduce this a bit and set the stage. Some of it is just connecting the dots. Uh, some of you have, it looks like from appearances, that some of you have been with us almost every week for this series. And and uh, so you will know that we started a discussion, and that is really what it's been intended to do, uh, presenting you uh, some things to think about, talk about, act on, as whether you are um, caring for someone who is aging or anticipating that you will or in the midst of it yourself. I mean, we're all aging, right? Um, there have been some people that saw the title of this and thought, eh, that's not for me. Well, the reality is, it is uh, for all of us because of the nature of life in this world that we're all aging. And if, you, if, you've, if you've been around, I think that one of the drum beats that you've heard is it's time to start thinking about some and talking with family members about some of these things, whether it's you talking to your children or enabling them to talk to you uh, about uh, these things. And when we set out with it, uh, we knew we wouldn't cover everything that we could cover in this topic. And, um, and uh, we will finish next week with a forum that Nate will lead us on about end-of-life decisions, kind of the medical, ethical aspects of that. That's next week. That's in the bulletin. It's one of your Sunday announcements you'll hear in the worship service. But that's how this, uh, this finishes up um, next week. Um, and just while we're attending to this, and I've got a moment, I will say, the following week, so next week is the forum, the following week is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and you will recall, if you've been around, that, that we've devoted that Sunday to, to giving, the giving of thanks. So... Uh, you'll be urged to be thinking about things that you were thankful for to come to a gathered, uh, gathered gathering uh, of all of the church during the Sunday school hour on November 24th to, to simply give thanks um, publicly out loud uh, for what God has done, what he is doing, uh, his gracious provision for you. That's November 24th. And then I promised you last week that I would tell you this week what will follow that. It's a three-week uh, series that you'll read about soon um, about providence and prayer. If God already knows, why pray? How long do I pray for something I've been praying for? How do we understand God's providence and, and, our, and the promises that are prayer, that whatever we ask, we receive? How do, you, how do we weave all those things together? And that'll be a three-week series starting the first Sunday of December, three December Sundays, 1, 8, and 15. You don't have to remember all this, but uh, you'll read it, and then we'll give some, send something your way uh, before a Christmas break. So that's what's coming. Today, uh, we're going to continue what we started last week, and that is stories from a few of you about how you are thinking about these years whether it's um, family-related, how you are talking with family, how you're anticipating these years. And Steve and, and Charlie helped us last week. And today, Barbara is going to take a few minutes as we start. Barbara Cheney, come on up, Barbara. And following that, uh, Jim <coughs> Taylor is going to talk with us about the topic that was assigned for today, um, 
uh, about the funeral home and all that goes with there. Let me pray for our time together. Father, thank you for gathering us. We look to you with hope and purpose. We're grateful for the freedom that we have in the gospel and how the gospel enables us and allows us to to face issues and to talk through matters that do matter. So help us today, we pray. Thank you for Barbara and and Jim and what they have to contribute uh, to our ongoing dialogue and conversation about these things. So meet us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know when I was 30 that I never thought I'd be speaking to a group of people on aging. It just wasn't in my thoughts, I'm sure. Um, It's been 40 years since my mother's death. She fell over um, from an aneurysm that burst on her aorta, and she was making soup, and her last words were to my father when he walked in the kitchen that he, she loved him and he fell, she fell over dead. Um, that was a few months before I was going to turn 30. And she had told me for years that she had a gift for me when I turned 30. So Terry and I went to my, to my home. We hoped that my father had packed up all the stuff to move to Traverse City, which he didn't. So we packed up everything. In the middle of packing all this, I was looking for my 30th birthday gift. I knew it was in the house. My father had no idea. And as we got to the dining room and to the break front in the last drawer, I found it. It was a poem from Family Circle called, And Now You're Turning 30. I thought, that's it. And so what my mother, while I didn't get to say goodbye to her, she left me a legacy that has stayed with me. And that was a big help. Um, My father, he fell over dead, playing golf at the Elmbrook Golf Course in Traverse City. Um, He missed his putt on the 11th hole and died of a heart attack. Um, That was a real surprise. We had just moved here um, July 4th of 1995, and he died August 22nd of 1995. So he never came to see us here, never saw our house. He knew our kids when they were young, and um, they were four and six when he died, so they never really got to know him in a deep way. Um, last week, Steve was talking about having a family gathering where you could talk about what you want, what you want to leave behind, and what they like. Um, my father had that talk with me and my brother, but I can't say that it was really settled for quite a while. And he came to visit us in Arizona one year for two weeks at Christmas. And he told me um, in a very interesting conversation that he didn't think he was going to leave me the, the cottage or any money because I didn't like pipe, pipe smoking. And he was quite sure that I would think that money in that cottage was filled with smoke and I probably wouldn't want it, only he didn't say it as nicely as I just said it. And I realized my father, for the first time in his life towards me, was having a tantrum. And he was yelling and screaming at me. And I told him, well, it's not my house and it's not my money, it's yours. So you do with it whatever you want. And if you want to give it somebody else at your funeral, I'll tell everybody else that you gave it away because you wanted to and that's fine with me which he was sort of surprised at. I was firmly believing at the funeral that I was going to be cut out of the will. I was not, to my surprise. Because usually what my father said, he meant. 
By the way, he died at the height of his investments, which was a real blessing to us. Terry's mother, she was found dead by his brother and aunt. She had fallen over and died. Terry's father died of mesothelioma when our older son was six months old, and it was a very painful death, but we didn't experience that because they lived in Florida. So when people ask me, well, what did you do with your parents when they were aging? We said, we don't, we watched them age and then they died. Um, and when my father died, I had three stepsisters. And one of them came to the house and she claimed things that she wanted. And I know she loved my dad and I gave her those things because I knew how much my dad meant to her. And so as I walked away from learning, um, I guess one of the hardest things was when my, when my stepmother's mother died, I saw her family um, turn to my father as the only one who was a disinterested when it came to all the possessions. He was the one that decided who was going to be getting what. And so I just want to encourage you that if you have items in your home, in your family, that you want to give relatives, find out early what they want. It was very hard for my dad to have to go through that and be the mediator um, in that step family. Um, my own aging, I have, the last 10 years have not been good with two knee replacements, a shattered elbow, and having to be rebuilt. Um, and I can tell you that it takes a community to keep you going. I'm very thankful for my list of doctors, Dr. Kalendong, Dr. Casey, Dr. Kutsikovich, and my husband, Terry, because without all that team, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing to maintain my health, and I'm very grateful. But above all that, I just want to tell you, I think the most important thing in your aging is not the stuff you have, it's your identity in Christ. And your sufficiency should be coming from him alone. Because ultimately, that's the legacy that you want to give. You want your family to know who you are in Christ. And I finished reading um, the Finishing Your Course with Joy book back in October. Um, in fact, it was October 19th, and I'll finish with this. Oh, by the way, we had a cat that was dying of dementia. And it was very difficult when I buried her. We face placing beloved pets into their graves. We face placing our parents into their graves. And one day we will be called to look into our own grave. And I said, oh Lord Jesus, I am ready for this because of you. That's all I got. Yes, thank you, Barbara. Thank you for that um, <clears throat> window into not only your life, but into the gospel. Thank you. Um, Many of you have known uh, Jim Taylor long before he actually started uh, gathering with us on Sundays uh, because of his work at Williams Memorial. And uh, we've asked Jim to uh, uh, orient us, basically. What you're, what you're getting is something, as you can tell, right from Williams Memorial with uh, all kinds of things. Also included is an outline of what he was in a, wants to talk through here. We've got a just a bit over half an hour. Our, our hope is we have some time for a little dialogue Q&A, but Jim, we're delighted to have you with us to kind of walk us through this stage of the journey. So, welcome. I cannot uh, 
resist sharing with you a poem, and then we'll quickly dive into the material. But Dawn, if you'll stand just a moment. This is my wife, Dawn Taylor, and we live here in Franklin, and we've been married for 44 years, and uh, uh, other than Jesus, she's the best thing that's ever happened in my life. Okay. All right. Thank you. There's a man by the name of Richard Peck Gunn who is deceased now. He was Port Laureate of Tennessee, and he wrote a poem once about the outhouse. He said, in Nashville, every family boasts of five rooms and a bath, but in my youth, I never had but three rooms and a path. They built the outhouse on the banks of Tumbling Creek, and then each time I passed, I had an urge to push the outhouse in. For weeks I fought this powerful urge, but one day I was weak. I slipped out to the outhouse and I pushed it in the creek. That night, my dad called me aside and all he had to say was, do you know who pushed the house into the creek today? I told my Paul that it was I. He didn't even chide, but then and there with leather belt prepared to tan my hide. But daddy, when George Washington cut down the cherry tree, he told the truth, and so as Paul let little George go free. Well, let me ask you something, son, my dad said with a frown. Was his paw in that cherry tree when Georgie cut it down? <laughs> <laughs> a little theology as we get into the material today. Centuries ago, Solomon penned these words. He said, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. There's a time to dance, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time to be born, and there is a time to die. Um, Henry Van Dyke, somebody once asked this man the question, what do you think it's like to die? And he said, you know, I once stood on a seashore, and a ship at my side raised her white sails in the morning breeze, and started for the blue ocean. She was an object of beauty and strength. And I stood and watched her for a moment and pretty soon she hangs like a cloud where the sea and the sky come to mingle with each other. And then someone at my side said, there, she is gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She is just as large and mass and whole as she was when she was at my side. She is just as able to transport her cargo to a distant port. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at the moment when someone at my side said, there, she is gone, other eyes were watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout, look, here she comes. And that, my friends, is dying. I suppose a doctor at a hospital might define death as a straight line on EKG, but the holy word of God defines death as a separation of the body from the spirit. The body goes back to the dust of the earth, but the spirit goes back to God who gave it. From dust thou art to dust returneth was not spoken of the soul. When our loved ones close their eyes in death, they awaken in the embrace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our loved ones 
pass away. They have gone on to the land of the living, but they've left you and I in the land of the dying. You and I still walk the streets of clay here on this earth, but they now walk the streets of gold in heaven. You and I walk by faith, but they now walk by sight in the very presence of our living Lord. And so I have some good news and bad news. The good news is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the bad news is this body, this earthen vessel, this jar of clay, this earth suit that you and I walk around in, uh, it still has to be dealt with. Your family still is going to have a lot of decisions to make uh, as a result of your passing. And so today I'm going to walk you through what takes place when you go to the funeral home and you make uh, funeral arrangements. Uh, and then at the end of the service, I'll try to leave time for us to uh, see. Tony, I think you said it's 1030. No, when we. Okay. So we'll have a chance. So you make some mental notes. I'm going to bring up a lot of to topics. I'm going to hit on some, some high notes here. And then if you want to make a note or two of some questions you'd like to ask, time permitting, we will try to address those. Uh, but four, I want to mention to you my background. During my junior and senior year in high school, I lived at a funeral home here in Franklin called Franklin Memorial Chapel. I attended high school in the morning classes. I worked funerals in the afternoon, and then I ran ambulance calls at night. Now, it's hard to believe that the funeral home actually ran the ambulance service. This was back in uh, maybe the late 60s, early 70s, and they would train us when we would go to an accident. There may be four or five funeral homes going to a bad automobile accident. If possible, we were to get the one that was hurt the most. There may be six people hurt because more than likely we would get the, uh, uh, the funeral if they passed. Now, isn't that terrible? That wasn't my thinking, but that's what, what I was taught. Uh, and so uh, uh, then I went to Lipscomb University uh, following high school and uh, received a bachelor's degree with a double major. And then uh, following this, uh, I <clears throat> began to practice in the ministry, uh, mainly in the youth ministry as an associate pastor. But for the last 30 years, I've worked at Williamson Memorial Funeral Home here in Franklin. We're at the corner of Columbia Avenue and Mack Hatcher. And during my time in those 30 years, I've made two observations from my experiences. One, there is nothing in this world, nothing that is more painful than bearing a child. It does not get any worse than that. Some of you may or may not remember when Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife buried their six-year-old daughter. And, and I made the arrangements for that family and took him to a church in Nashville, and it was... It might hold 2,000, 1,500, 2,000 people. I don't know, but it was standing room only. And right before that service began, uh, Stephen Curtis and his extended family arrived, and they had suits on, and they walked into the church right before the service began, and he and his people were barefooted. And it looked kind of odd to have a suit on and be barefooted there. And I was standing close enough that I heard somebody ask him, uh, why are you barefooted? And he responded, we're here today to worship God, and we're standing on 
holy ground. And he knew that God, the Lord, was there in their presence today. And it was like Moses in the burning bush. But there is nothing in this world that is more painful than bearing a child. That's the first observation. And in 30 years, I have buried a lot of children. Secondly, I have noticed there's a huge difference between the way believers grieve and non-believers. It's very obvious to me. A believer grieves, but they do so with hope in their heart. They know they're going to see their loved one again. It's not forever, this separation. But non-believers is a completely different situation. And I'm telling you from my personal experience, when you grieve without hope, it is extremely painful in life. Uh, at Williamson Memorial, I wear several hats. I'm a licensed funeral director, making arrangements at the time of need with, with families. Secondly, I serve as a chaplain. Uh, it's like a calling th that I have. Uh, I tried, Tony, to work in the, uh, in the ministry with churches for maybe 15 years, and uh, I was like a fish out of water. I was trying to do something that I wanted to do, maybe not what God called me to do. But when the Lord, he can open doors, my friends, that you and I cannot shut. And he can shut doors that we can't open. But one of my callings there is at serving as a chaplain. In the last 30 years, uh, I, I have officiated over 1,800 funerals. And it's a wonderful opportunity for me to very subtly and tactfully share the gospel with a lot of people who never darken the door to church. Just to very gently plant some seeds in their heart, not only of, of comfort, but also seeds of, uh, of their future in, in Christ. A third uh, assignment that I have at the funeral home, I operate our crematory. We have two funeral homes, one at Williamson Memorial and one in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Our crematories in Spring Hill, and we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Uh, but let me first tell you how Dawn and I ended up here at Cornerstone. Uh, I did not know Emil personally, but he called the funeral home and scheduled a time to come in and make funeral arrangements for his precious wife, Wendy. This was three and a half years ago. It was in, I think, May of 2016. And I went home that night and told Dawn, I met a minister at a funeral service today named Nate Sheridan. And I was just blown away by this man's gift to, to minister to hearts and his command of the English language, his ability to share God's message. And I'd like for you to go with me to hear him one Sunday. And that was three and a half years ago when we've been here ever since. And most of the time we have the opportunity to sit with Emil uh, during the funeral service, but just a, a there he is. I was kind of hidden. But Emil is a precious man, a man with great faith in God. And you know, uh, some people go to work every day and they dread what they're doing. It's hard to get out of bed and do it. But God has given me a peace about ministering at the funeral home because of so many hundreds and hundreds of families that I come in contact with and get to do some grief. Uh, uh, and so uh, I want to start by 
talking about not everybody dies in the hospital or a nursing home. It's become very common. When I went to work at the funeral home in 1990, very seldom would we have somebody to die at home. But over the years, there's been a trend, and a lot of people are passing at home, and uh, they have hospice, and there are a lot of hospice organizations, like Willowbrook and Alive Hospice and many more. And what happens is when, when a person dies at home, uh, the hospice nurse will come to the house and pronounce them, go through some protocol, and then call the funeral home for us to come and pick them up. Now, if you don't have hospice, uh, it's, it's, it's a whole lot more involved. We can't just receive a call from a husband or a wife or whomever and come to the house and pick up the body. So the medical examiner sends out, you know, investigators, uh, and there's a lot more involved in it. But it, a lot of folks are passing away at home, and so uh, we come to the house and then schedule an appointment for the family to come in and make the funeral arrangements, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, some highlights. The first thing I'll do when I sit down with the family is to gather some information uh, that we will need to prepare a death certificate. Uh, for example, these death certificates are filed electronically as of maybe a year ago. Prior to that, we had to... Uh, uh, type the DC, hand deliver it to the doctor. It may sit there on their desk for three days or a week or whatever. Then the nurse would call us whenever he had signed it. We did it all by hand, but now it's electronic. I'll gather the information, and you will need to tell me your loved one's date of birth or social security number, the city or county where they were born. You need to give me their father's name, their mother's name, including their mother's maiden name, the highest grade completed in their schooling. That and a lot more goes on their death certificate. And then I throw it on the computer and file it electronically. I'll send it to the doctor first, and he or she will sign it, and then electronically send it back to me. Then I will send it to the state, and they do their thing and, and, and uh, certifying it. And then they send it to the health department. And I can go to any health department, not just in Tennessee, but anywhere. Of course, I would go to the Williamson County Health Department, and they will issue the certified copies that you will need uh, for business purposes. When I say certified, they have a raised seal on them as opposed to a, uh, a photocopy. Uh, who would need them? Well, uh, for example, maybe an insurance company, they're going to want a certified copy as opposed to a photocopy. Um, if, uh, <clears throat> if, let's just say about Social Security, sometimes they ask for a certified and sometimes not. Why? Because they pay a one-time uh, lump sum death benefit of $255 only to a surviving spouse. So if your spouse has died, they don't pay that. But uh, uh, if, if, so that one time, and if they're paying that death benefit, they're going to want a certified copy. Uh, if a will is being probated, uh, sometimes the banks might want one depending on how the account is set up. So you'll need, now how long does it take to get the death certificates? Usually about a week. Depends on how quickly the doctor signs this death certificate and sends it back to us. But by the time that happens and it's filed uh, with the state and health department issues to certify, it's usually about a week. It may be a little more, a little less sometimes. Uh, those uh, death certificates are $15 a copy for the certifieds. Uh, if you're a veteran, any veterans in the room, show of hands, anybody here that's a veteran? Uh, you receive the first three copies. Uh, at no charge, then anything beyond that, you'll pay $15 for the certified DCs. 
Uh, I gather also at that time the information I need for the obituary. Uh, for example, the names of those who preceded you in death, uh, your survivors' names, uh, clubs and noteworthy achievements about the person, uh, maybe a charity that memorials can be made to in lieu of flowers. Uh, all of this and more would go on that, uh, that obituary. We type the obituary while you're there and let you proofread it and tweak it, and then we post the obit on our website along with the picture of the deceased, and then on your behalf we submit the obit to any newspaper that might be out of town or whatever. Uh, so... Uh, all of this is taking place in that meeting that I would have with the loved one making the funeral arrangements. Uh, we also, at that time, schedule a time for the visitation and for the funeral service, the celebration of life. During that time, you'd select a, a casket and a vault, an outer burial container the casket goes in. You'd select a register book for the guest to sign during that visitation time. Uh, if you choose to go that route, these are, these are some of the decisions you would make. We email you a link so that you can download pictures, maybe 40, 45 pictures, and then we'll make a picture slideshow uh, to run on a loop cycle during that visitation time. Uh, again, I'm talking about a number of topics, and I'm just going to hit some highlights. When I went to work for the funeral home, we were doing somewhere around 5% of cremation. Now we're doing right at 37% of cremation. So you see the trend. And a lot of people are choosing this option simply because economically uh, it fits their pocketbook a lot better. Now, some, that's not the only reason, but a lot of people do it for eco economical reasons. For example, maybe a $2,100 cremation versus an eight dollars to $12,000 funeral. And so there is a huge difference. Depending on the casket and vault and that kind of thing that you select, a funeral can really go up in price. But we own our own crematory. We have two funeral homes, I said, Franklin, Spring Hill. Our crematory is there in Spring Hill. And uh, your loved one stays in our care until the cremation is completed. We do not outsource a cremation. When a family requests cremation, the question is raised, how long will it be before the cremation is conducted? and the family is given the urn, and I usually tell people seven to ten days. And you might think, why does it take so long? Well, the state of Tennessee requires three documents to be in place before we can cremate. Um, one is the next of kin, the legal next of kin, has to sign a cremation authorization form whereby they're authorizing the cremation. Number two, a death certificate has to be signed by the physician and found with the state. And number three, the health department has to issue a cremation permit before we can cremate. And the medical examiner in Nashville has to authorize that cremation. Um, he has to rule out foul play and, so, and, and a number of other things. So he wants to make sure there's a doctor in place that's going to sign the D.C. and da-da-da-da-da. So it usually takes about seven to ten days before we're even allowed to cremate with those documents. Um, there are three options, three cremation options people would have. One is a direct cremation without a celebration of life, without a memorial service. Number two is a cremation with a memorial service. And number three is a traditional cremation where the body is embalmed and it's present at the uh, celebration of life, maybe in a rental casket. We call it a ceremonial casket 
before a, the body is there while they have a visitation in the funeral, and then the cremation would take place after. I mentioned a few moments ago about the topic of Social Security. Uh, the law requires by, that we file with the Social Security office a form that basically informs them of that loved one's passing. And that way, say for an example, if the individual is married, uh, you know, they, that form we send stops their Social Security check. And if the husband, by chance, is, is making his Social Security check is higher than the wife, the wife will no longer get both checks, but she will get the highest of the two at that point. Uh, so, uh, and then also, if it's an unexpected death and there's still young children at home, Social Security will start sending some, some financial support to the family, depending on how many children that they have. And so... Uh, um, Veterans benefits. Let me touch on that momentarily here. <clears throat> Middle Tennessee Veterans Cemetery in Nashville is one of the benefits that you'll get. You think, well, don't, I, don't they pay for half of the funeral? No, they may pay $300 if the veteran died in a VA hospital or if they're receiving a monthly disability check from an injury that took place uh, while they were serving our country. But otherwise... If you don't make those two um, conditions, then your benefits would be using a military cemetery. So anyone who is a veteran uh, could provide me with a DD-214, and I will set up through the Middle Tennessee Veterans Cemetery that's located on McCrory Lane, uh, probably about four or five or six miles from Loveless Restaurant. It's not too far off of Highway 100. Great cemetery. It's well-maintained, and they give you some great benefits. When the veteran passes, they will provide a grace space free of charge for the vet and his spouse or her husband. Uh, what else? They will provide the opening and closing of the grave at no cost. In our cemetery, it's 900 bucks to open and close the grave. But at Middle Tennessee Veterans, uh, no charge at all. And there's no charge to open and close the spouse's grave. So if the vet dies first, they will reserve a space right beside the vet for the spouse. Or if the spouse dies first, you know, they'll reserve one for the vet. They also provide, at no cost, an outer burial container that the casket would go in. And they provide a marker. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to me, the marker, let's say, for the vet that passed first, just has his name on one side, but when the spouse dies, they reorder another marker and put the husbands on one side and the spouse on the back side. Now, I've often thought, what happens to the first marker? Well, I found out the other day, I usually didn't, hadn't had a chance to see this, but uh, when the spouse dies, they take the vest, vet's marker or vice versa and put it down in the bottom of the grave before they put the casket. Now, this is the way it's done at Middle Tennessee Vet. And, it, and then, then when they lower the casket, they say they don't want two of these markers floating around in circulation. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, another thing is the military honors. Uh, if the family chooses, and I recommend it highly, and no matter what branch of service you're in, if it's Army or Navy or Air Force, I will contact them, but you have to provide me with that DD-214. And then I will arrange for the military 
to come in full military dress, and if the vet was in for 20 years or longer, uh, they'll have uh, a rifle team there. Uh, they'll have someone to blow a bugle, to blow taps, and then they will fold the flag and present the flag to the next of kin. And it takes about three minutes to do all of that, maybe, maybe four at the max. And uh, it's the, one of the benefits the military provides our, our vets for the service that they have provided our country. I have made multiple trips rather than sometimes if a certain person is able or qualifies to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, I'll make flight arrangements, send them to a funeral home uh, there in the D.C. area, and they'll take care of, of the uh, Arlington National Cemetery. But multiple times families said, don't want my loved one flown. Can you drive them there? And so Dawn and I many times have gone to Arlington National Cemetery, and it's fascinating. They do it a little different than military honors at Middleton C. Vet. Uh, they pro I'll pull the hearse up, and the uh, military pallbearers will come take the casket out of the hearse, carry it into a chapel, beautiful chapel, and have a 20-minute service. And then they will uh, come back, and I have moved the hearse, and they have a caisson there, a horse-drawn carriage. Military honors team will place the casket on the horse-drawn carriage, and they will have a 40-, 50-piece band marching right behind the caisson. They'll have a riderless horse with the boots going the opposite direction. Uh, it's just amazing to see uh, how they conduct a, and not every vet qualifies to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, but many do. Let me bounce over to the cemetery itself. If you, uh, you have the opportunity to purchase either traditional grave spaces uh, where the vault is put in the ground at the time of need, or you can purchase a long crypt where the vault is already in the ground, and they can either be side-by-side -side long crypts or double long crypts where they're stacked. One grave space, but the one that dies first is, is on the bottom, and the one that dies next is on a petition right above that first casket. Uh, another option would be mausoleum crypts. A lot of people like above dry uh, burials, not in the ground burials. Uh, and we have niches in the mausoleum. If a person is cremated, their urn can be placed in the niche. Uh, we have columbariums. That's similar to a mausoleum, but it's only for the, the cremation, uh, the niches where the urn is placed in the columbarium. We have private estate mausoleums. That's where a husband and wife might buy a, a mausoleum space in their own mausoleum, not like in a huge mausoleum we have that I call a community mausoleum, but the own personal mausoleum. And that thing is costly. It may cost $30,000 or maybe sometimes more. And uh, then we uh, have an, a cremation estate garden uh, where it's just for urns where people have been cremated. Uh, moving along, I'll talk in just a moment about the medical examiner and about autopsies and why, in some cases, a medical examiner might choose to perform an autopsy to rule out foul play uh, or sometimes to determine if it was accidental death because, you see, the insurance policy may pay double, they may double the benefits if the death was accidental. And in some instances, the family may request the autopsy and not the medical examiner. Certain health issues are hereditary and are passed down. And if the ME does, uh, if he orders the aut autopsy for whatever reason he chooses, there's no charge. 
to the family. But if the autopsy is conducted at the family's request, then payment has to be made up front, $3,000 in cash. Uh, talk just a moment about funeral planning, and then maybe we'll have some question and answers before we finish. A lot of folks choose to prearrange their funerals. One reason is because it is so much easier on the survivors at the time of need as opposed to them coming in when a loved one has just passed away and uh, under a lot of grief makes some, some big decisions in a quick amount of time. So a lot of families choose uh, to prearrange their funerals. Sometimes they prearrange and do it as what we call a spin down. If maybe a parent has gone into the nursing home and the nursing home is maybe charging several thousand dollars a month depending on the level of care that you're receiving, that can eat up a person's life savings pretty quick. When your assets get down to $2,000 or less, then Medicaid will step in and start paying uh, for your nursing home charges, but not until your assets are down to $2,000 or less. So if you stay there for a prolonged amount of time, that's gonna eat into your life savings pretty quick. That won't apply to all of you, but believe me, most people I serve, their money in a nursing home is gonna run out pretty quick. Uh, and so they will choose to come in before their loved one passes and prearrange their funeral. Maybe they choose a traditional funeral with the, the body present and buried afterwards, and it might cost anywhere from eight to $12,000. So they go ahead and take that money and uh, prearrange the funeral, and I put it in an irrevocable trust account. And that way, Medicaid does not consider it an asset of yours. So the funeral's paid for and it does not leave a financial burden on anybody that's left behind. But some people prearrange for that purpose, spend downs. Others do it primarily because they don't want to leave this on their family to have to take place or take care of at, at the time of need. Um, but uh, I tell you what, I, I could literally, I've left out half of this material, I could go on for 30 more minutes, but I'm gonna stop because it's about uh, 25 after the hour. Let me just see if anybody has any questions uh, concerning uh, making funeral arrangements at the time. First of all, before we have any questions, I would say at least half of you maybe have had to go in and make funeral arrangements. Uh, perhaps for a, a mother or father or a sibling or someone. But I would dare say there's probably some here that's never had to go into a funeral home and do this. So some of this material might be new to you. But anybody here, show of hands, that's had to come in and make arrangements for whomever? Okay, I'm sure a lot of the material I've covered this morning uh, you're familiar with somewhat. But perhaps you have some specific questions. Anybody? Yes, sir, Terry. Assume you live here in Tennessee. Yes, sir. You have a burial plot in another state. Mm -hmm. How would that be? Well, you would... Uh, mm -hmm. No, not really. You would come in. And, and, well, say, are you going to celebrate the life here locally and then send them? Yes. You'd come in and, and uh, we would gather the information we need for an obituary and you'd make your selections and so forth. So you would purchase a casket, but not a vault. Uh, it's a code of ethics that I have with other funeral directors. If they're gonna actually bury the person, that's how they're making some of their money. They want you to buy their vault from them if they're gonna bury you out of state somewhere. But you're gonna have a visitation and a funeral here. You're certainly gonna get a casket here. And then I will find out from you what 
funeral home, I'm to fly you to. Now, if it's just going to be a graveside service and it's, you know, fairly close, then I, I could very easily take you myself for that graveside service. But most of the time, I think Terry is thinking of what happens. I'm going to make flight arrangements and email those flight arrangements to the receiving funeral home. They'll know exactly what time the body is going to arrive at the airport. They'll come and pick up the body. But the states usually require that a funeral director, a licensed funeral director, be present at a graveside service. And so the funeral home is involved, and they'll go ahead and schedule you the details with the opening and closing of the grave and what have you with uh, whatever cemetery the person's going to be buried in. But I would fly you to uh, a receiving funeral home. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, it's a good question, and I see that often, regularly. Our cemetery does not buy the plot back, but uh, a lot of times uh, they will run an ad in a local paper where the cemetery is at and uh, price it a little less than what the current grave spaces are, are running for, and the chances are good they'll. When we do that at our cemetery, and people will bring the, the, the buyer in, and we have a document where we're transferring the ownership from, from you to the buyer, and both sign that. But the money, we have nothing to do with. That's just between the person. That's one way they sell it. But in our day and time, uh, with so many options out there of this multimedia, and, and people can access a lot of ways to, to sell it. But yes, sir. There's no law that would prevent it. Uh, and I do that occasionally. But what people need to realize is where they're burying that person may be uh, taken care of in the first generation or so, but there'll probably come a time where the cemetery is just overgrown. But, but there's no law in Tennessee that would prevent you. I've buried several in the last two years I can think of now just on the farm, the family farm somewhere. Uh, and... Uh, there's nothing at this point in time that would prevent it. I had, interestingly enough, been contacted by the state that wanted to run a highway right through this small cemetery. And so we went in and disinterred all of the bodies that are buried there and moved them to another location and reburied them. Uh, and so um, uh, the highway could be, come right through where the cemetery was located. But uh, it, it, it can easily be done. But I'm telling you, it, uh, our cemetery <clears throat> is a perpetual care cemetery. So many pennies of every dollar that you spend in buying a grave goes into a perpetual care fund. We can never touch the principal. But the interest that it earns is how we maintain the cemetery. And the state of Tennessee sends auditors to our uh, funeral home all the time, regular basis, to make sure that uh, those monies are trusted where they need to be. Uh, let me take just a, another second or two, and then, Tony, I'll close. Uh, most of you know the name Minnie Pearl. When she passed away, she's buried right here in Franklin at Mount Hope Cemetery. 
And when she passed away, her uh, husband, Henry, came up to order the marker for her grave. And he said, I want you to put something really simple on my wife's tombstone. I want you to put Sarah Cannon, her date of birth and her date of passing. And the man selling the marker said, don't you want us to put Minnie Pearl on there? And Henry said, absolutely not. He said, Sarah Cannon is the one that died. He said, Minnie Pearl's going to live forever. <laughs> and you know, that, that was so thought-provoking to me because I think you and I are going to live forever, not only uh, in that eternal home in heaven that Jesus prepared for us, but you're going to live forever in the hearts of your family that will cherish your, your precious memories for generations to come. Tony, I close with a story, and then we pray. Okay. All right. Uh, the little boy was somewhere around six to seven years of age. True story. And he's diagnosed by his doctor with a malignant brain tumor. And the parents made the decision to keep their son active as long as possible. And so they uh, continued to send their son to school. And they made his teacher aware of his diminishing mental capabilities. And sometime in the spring of that year, the teacher brings these big eggs to class you know, something like stocking or hose or something come in, gave every student one of the eggs and said, your assignment this evening is to go home and put something inside the egg that reminds you of Easter. You know, something that, that symbolizes life. And the next day, she brings this big picnic basket. She goes to every desk, collects the eggs, and begins the assignment of opening the eggs one at a time. And the first egg she came to, there was this beautiful buttercup just beginning to unfold in the spring of that year. And the next egg she opened, there was a, a broken robin's egg inside. And she talked about that, how it symbolized life. The next egg she opened, there was nothing uh, inside the egg. And she thought to herself, this must be little Johnny's egg. His condition has gotten so bad, he didn't even understand the assignment. She continued through the exercise, and at the end, Johnny's hand shot up. And he said, teacher, you didn't open my egg. And she said, oh, but I did, Johnny, and there was nothing inside your egg. You know, I asked you to put something in there that reminds you of Easter. You know, something that symbolizes life. And Johnny said, but teacher, wasn't the tomb empty? Oh, my friends, if there's anything that symbolizes life, it is an empty grave. I remind us all that Jesus has been victorious over death. He has been victorious over the grave. The throne in heaven is occupied. You and I serve a living Savior. And it makes all the difference in the world because we as believers have a purpose in life. We have a God that provides the grace to sustain us even as God is sustaining Amos. So thank you so much. God bless thank you. you. Thank you, Jim. If you uh, joined us late, there are these that you might want to leave, leave with one of these. Uh, they're from Williamson Memorial. Um, Jim is not here selling anything. It's, he's informing us. There's things in here that can help along those lines, and I'm sure he'd be glad to talk with you further uh, sometime later. It's the resurrection that we celebrate as we worship. Lord, we thank you for this morning and these moments and the reality of, a, of an empty tomb that gathers us here. It's because of your coming into this world to, to rescue, to restore, and to redeem, and to renew all things that we give you thanks. Thank you for one another, for our conversation. Help us uh, to face um, some of these things that would be uh, 
so hard to face were it not for the reality of our hope in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.